0: Welcome back to the second series of Pep Talk. This is episode eight, and I'm here with Professor Tim Jackson for the University of Surrey. Hi, Ted. Um, Tim, can you introduce yourself a little bit and what, what you do for our listeners? Yeah, um, so I'm Professor
1: Tim Jackson. I am um, I guess I, I've sort of, I always describe myself as kind of accidental economist. Much of what I do at the moment is economics. But I didn't start out that way. I started studying uh, mathematics and philosophy. And then I, um, I, I got into thinking about the, the environment, about sustainability, and mm-hmm. I began to realise that economics actually is a critical part of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and I ended up, sort of doing economics, running a research group here, and actually the research group has some economists, but it also has philosophers, it has, psychologists, it has sociologists, and we take a, a broadly interdisciplinary approach to a very, very simple question, which
0: is, what can prosperity possibly mean on a finite planet? Wonderful. I mean, leading on from that, your two two books focus on the idea of a a post-growth society. Yeah. So what do you think that would look like? What would differ to the way our society is currently? Well, a starting point for both those books, really,
1: is thinking about how the economy is at the moment, how we organise society at the moment. Um, And for the last you know, 60, 70 years, since the Second World War, really, um, economists and politicians have been pretty much fixated on the idea of economic growth. Mm -hmm. And it goes without a great deal of criticism, you know, it's just accepted, it's almost like a mantra, it's almost semi-religious in people's allegiance to the idea that that's what the economy does, it grows, of course it does, you know, it's the economy, stupid, it goes growing each year, and because it grows each year, Things are getting better and better for everybody and and that's what progress is so that that broad idea that you know progress is about the growth in the the economy and the particular ind- indicator of the economy called the gross domestic product the gdp that that's what makes the economy work that 's what makes society work that's what allows government to function and you know the the tricky thing is of course, as the economy gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, we have more and more in, impact on the planet. And so it's likely at some point that all that expansion of economic activity is going to undermine our ability to have an economy at all in the future. Take climate change as an example. Yeah. You know, the more, the more the economy grows, the more you burn carbon, the more carbon in the atmosphere, the hotter the climate gets. And then it begins to undermine the soils and your agriculture and your food supply system and stops you being able to function as a society. And that's a point where growth looks like it was doing you a lot of good, but actually it's undermining mm-hmm. your ability to have a society at all into the future. And so that critique, that critique of growth, actually, when you look at it, there was a very strong critique in the 1970s. The Club of Rome published a report back in 1972 called The Limits to Growth. And then that debate kind of went away and everyone got very excited with how the economy was growing, 80s, 90s, noughties, and and we thought that would go on forever and we could solve all those environmental problems technology would fix it for us and the reality is it hasn't you know we haven't really solved the climate problem we haven't solved the biodiversity problem we've got rising inequality which growth should have solved but actually in some cases it's made it worse and yet economics is still basically built around the assumption of economic growth politics is built around the assumption we've got continuing economic growth Politicians always talk about growth, you know, we had recently Keir Starmer and Liz Truss both saying, gross, 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 you know, there's three things that we have to do to solve all these problems, gross, gross, gross. Mm-hmm. And and you kind of get a sense that economics itself and politics is locked into um, a kind of growth fetish, mm-hmm. if you like. So. Your question, you know, what does it look like after growth? I mean, the reality is that we don't know that much about it, but -hmm. it's partly because we haven't looked. And so mostly what we're trying to do is say it's time to look beyond growth. It's time to think what the world might be like after growth and what that society would be like. And, you know, we can talk about all sorts of different ways in which it could be different, but the main thing to me at this point is to just kind of, get
0: over the idea mm-hmm. that growth can or should or will go on forever. Okay so so presuming we've moved past this idea and we're in a hypothetical post-growth society some people might argue that things like welfare could be difficult to fund without continued economic growth. Yeah. How would you respond to that? How would you keep the core the core Let's say the core systems of society which are needed, mm. how would they continue to be funded and continue to operate without the sort of economic growth that we've grown used to when these societies were created? Well, that's
1: a very good question. In a way, it's the heart of the question, because, um, you know, if we can't provide welfare for people, if we can't provide health care, if we can't look after older people, if we can't do social care, if we can't look after our kids, then you know, what is what is the welfare state, what is civilized society, what does progress even mean? And the trouble is, you know, the trouble is at the moment we're not doing a very good job of that within a growth-based society because we kind of focus on the things that deliver growth. And the things that deliver growth are things that tend to come from Extracting resources, turning them into products, selling them into the economy, throwing them away as fast as possible, giving lots of returns to your shareholders so that they can invest in new factories to do the same. So, we're not, I mean, in a way, you know, that, that simple question how could you have a welfare economy? How could you have a care economy? You know, that is the fundamental issue. And the trouble is that we, the way we've structured society around growth at the moment, means that the only way we can deliver healthcare, the only way we can deliver welfare, mm-hmm. is to have enough profits from making enough things that we then throw away fast enough and extract materials fast enough to do it in order to get the taxes to pay the government so the government can provide the healthcare system. And, of course, if you think in those terms, then you think, well, wow, you know, if growth stops, government's not going to have the revenues, and actually it's even in most cases engaged in a kind of race to the bottom to attract investment to keep that process going by reducing the taxes on business in order to keep things you know keep that cycle of investment innovation productivity returns to investment keeping all that going it's like a kind of treadmill that we can't get off and actually isn't working now that's the problem because instead of focusing on the things that matter and focusing on the care on the welfare on the well-being on the happiness even of people and of society we kind of think the route towards welfare the route towards care is to go out and be as productive as possible to create returns to give us the taxes that we can pay for it after the fact and so the post-growth transition in my view is actually turning that right on its head and saying what is it that matters what is it that we value and so the tr- you know the trouble with where we are at the moment is that that we've kind of forgotten what it is we're after if we're after the well-being of of human beings and we think we can get that by chasing growth and we can only get it by chasing growth and that means we don't value the care that produces the health that means that we are all well and we are you know we can have a, a healthy population we can have people who are can have fun because they're healthy they can have good strong mental health they can be Mm -hmm. physically active they can do things that they enjoy and that you know the argument really of a post-growth society is that that should come first so that the way that you organize society should focus first on people's well-being should focus first on something things like health care and social care Mm -hmm. and that means that you have to think of care actually as a kind of investment as a fundamental investment in society and the way we think about it in the growth based economy is that care is a cost Mm -hmm. and we devalue care as we devalue care workers we devalue the care system we underinvest in care and that means that we lose our productivity we lose our health we lose our ability to operate as a society all because we're trying to chase this elusive goal of, of growth so the reorganisation of that, I mean, it's very, it's very non-trivial, but it demands in the first place that we value and measure the things that really matter. Mm-hmm. So if we measure, you know, if we value our health, then we should be investing in care. That makes sense. And that should happen first. And That should happen before we decide whether we can afford to invest in care because we can't afford not to invest in care if care gives us health Health gives us productivity. Health gives us well-being. Health gives us everything that that we want. So, I haven't entirely answered your question in, you know, in pragmatic terms. I've answered it in terms of principle, and what I'm saying is that the pursuit of growth misses the point. Mm-hmm. And the point is that things that we want is not growth itself, and even money, up to a point, we don't need money itself. What we want that for is in order to create well-being. And if you underinvest in the things that create well-being, you're never going to get it however fast you grow. So
0: if you were to restructure the economy to focus on well-being and stop, and stop focusing on growth, that is where the funding will come from because the money is already there. Exactly. I mean, it depends to
1: an extent what you value in society. So okay. we've decided to create a money system that values the selling of goods in the market and the productivity with which you manufacture those goods so you can sell them faster. And we arrange our money system around that way of thinking about progress and that way of thinking about delivering well-being. But actually, we don't have to do it that way. We have the ability to organise our monetary system around an investment which values care, which values care workers, which pays decent wages to the people who were, during the pandemic, for example, at the very front line Mm. of our the protection of our health during the COVID pandemic. And yet, you know, a few months later, they are struggling for any kind of decent wage to even live on. And now, unprecedentedly, the NHS nurses are on strike, first time in their history, because two years after the pandemic, they can't even afford to live. And so, and that's a choice. The point of the debate really around growth and about a different kind of economy, a different kind of society, is that that at the end of the day is about political choice. Mm -hmm. and what you value in society matters.
0: Moving on, uh, sort of a a little segue there, really, when talking about political choice with society. I'll move on to uh, the speech you mentioned earlier from Keir Starmer in a little while, but um, with the cost of living crisis, Mm. we've seen companies making record profits whilst people can barely afford to eat, heat their homes. Students around the country are struggling to pay their bills. Um, do you think this is a symptom of the growth-based economy? I, I mean, considering yeah, your previous absolutely. answer. I mean, before. it
1: it's, it's absolutely illustrates my point. You mm-hmm. know, the things that we value are the profits of companies and the returns to shareholders. And that's very good if you're a shareholder because it means that, you know, you are reaping the rewards of all the productivity in the economy and you're putting it in your back pocket, saving it for your pensions, you're doing whatever, you know, the well-off become better off. But actually, it does it by extracting value from the planet, from resources, and also extracting value from people who are, you know, paradoxically, even though they're providing the foundation for all that wealth, they're not being paid, they're not even being paid enough to live. I've done a project recently with um, Food Farming Countryside Commission, which I'm a commissioner on, and, you know, we went around the country looking at people in the food supply chain talking to them about their work about the situation about the food crisis and you know the most fundamentally really shocking thing for me in that project was talking to someone who basically works in the food industry who has to go to a food bank in order to survive in order to get the food that he needs to live to work in the food industry that's creating that food now how much of an indication of a dysfunctional economic system is that where the people who are the you know the very foundational workers who keep society going doesn't don't have enough wages to live on and as you say during this cost of living crisis when food firms and energy firms and banks are all returning record profit levels which are going into the pockets of a few shareholders and that's total social injustice
0: yeah um Again, build, building on that, really, we, um, as you mentioned earlier, Keir Starmer made a, a speech a couple of days ago about what the Labour government would do were it to be elected. And as you said, it was all about growth. One of his key things was economic growth. Um, and the real question there is: what do you think? Do you think Keir Starmer will be able to provide the change and support that he's, he's supposedly offering to people suffering from cost of living while still. F- following quite strictly a strong growth built manifesto it sort
1: of depends how he does it i mean i'm inclined to say no and and i've written to that effect i mean i kind of you know i've thrown a couple of broadsides at labor policy thinking at the moment because i think it's too narrow it's too it borrows too much from the kind of neoliberal conservative dogma that we've had for 13 years Mm -hmm. and that it isn't really recognising the fundamental challenge of the moment, which is that actually, you know, it's not like people haven't tried to increase the growth rate in the last little while. They've done lots of things not very well in pursuit of the growth rate, but at the same time, they've also you know, undermine the social fabric. They've increased inequality. They've uh, not invested sufficiently in environmental protection. We haven't solved our climate goals. We haven't reached our climate targets. So it isn't working. There's no doubt that it isn't working. And what Keir Starmer hasn't done, even remotely, is say how he's going to make that work differently. Mm-hmm. And it's still basically the same dogma growth first, and then all of this other stuff that you're worried about. Health, climate change, employment, nurses, whatever, you know growth first, and then we can pay the nurses a decent living and that just doesn't it doesn't work that way you know it cannot work that way and it partly can't work that way because when you've just got your mind focused on growth you're actually not caring about nurses you're not caring about the people who are volunteering in society you're not caring about women looking after kids in the home you're not you all you've got your eyes on is this glittering prize of more and more wealth for the investors And you could do anything you can to bring those investors into the country and then all the returns seep out elsewhere. It's again very extractivist of value from society. And you've lost your attention on what matters. You've lost your attention on ordinary people, their standards of living, their hopes and their aspirations, their job security, the decency of their working conditions, decency in old life. And in in older life, in towards the end of their life, decencies in the care system itself, and so so that's one of the reasons why it isn't it isn't going to work on its own. He he has to take a fundamentally different view of the organisation of society and the and what matters in society. And the other reason it isn't going to work is, as I said, people have been chasing this growth now for. Since the financial crisis 2007 2008, and most economists and most politicians think that that was the point at which growth suddenly kind of you know didn't exactly desert us, but it's definitely not been there in the way that we hoped it mm-hmm. would be there. Now, we've done a bit of work where we look at the statistics, we go back further than that, and what we find is when you go back further that actually the growth rate, the rate of economic growth, has been declining since the mid-1960s. In the mid-1960s, the annual growth rate was in sort of four or 5%. By the turn of the century, it was around about 2%. After the financial crisis, it's hovering around zero. In other words, we're already living in a post-growth society. And Keir Starmer's fine words, growth, 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 are not gonna get it back again. We're actually living in a different reality right now. Mm -hmm. And we have to kind of come to terms with that, think about what it means. And focus primarily focus on the things that matter in society mm. to protect well being, not chasing this glittering prize of, of endless,
0: eternal economic growth. Mm. Um, with the with the focus on politics, I would ask just quickly: Are there any politicians or political groups that you find more optimism in in their approaches? With, uh, with I would have yeah, yeah,
1: I, I would have said. Uh, uh, I mean, at certain points, I would have said the Labour Party. I mean, actually, Mm -hmm. you you talked about Prosperity Without Growth. That book was published originally as a report to the Labour government in 2009. And it was a report by a government commission, um, you know, asking the question where are we with economic growth, what's the relationship between economic growth and the environment, what could we do differently, and it reported directly to the Prime Minister in 2009. Mm. The Prime Minister virtually ignored it, but at least you know, mm. at that point in time, it was a government that was prepared to countenance a commission who would ask a question mm. as difficult as that. Subsequently, and this is what's disappointing about Keir Starmer's kind of pronouncements in a way, the Labour government has moved away from that sense of of um you know being more open to these questions the tory party was never really very open to those questions Mm -hmm. um i've had conversations with politicians from every party every political party i would say the only people who really take it seriously is the green party Mm -hmm. as you'd expect as you would expect Mm um and but i have at the same time had you know we we CUSP here, the centre that I run here, uh, is the um, secretariat for something called the All-Party Parliamentary Group on the Limits to Growth. Okay. And that has parliamentarians of, from across all parties, mm-hmm. Tories, Labour, Lib Dem, SNP, Green Party. The chair is Carolyn Lucas of who's the so. Green Party. Yeah. MP. Um, but it's you know, that, that conversation inside politics, inside Parliament, is an incredibly important conversation, but it doesn't have a lot of... It has a lot of individuals who are interested in it, individual politicians who kind of get the issue, and we have maybe a handful of very, very proactive members of the, of the parliamentary group. Um, but it hasn't had the traction that it needs in any political party that I know of outside of the Greens, in this country, and a party called the Alternative in Denmark, which also mm-hmm. went out looking for
0: uh, a deliberately kind of post-growth politics. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I'd never actually heard of that um, that sort of subcommittee. I I had no no clue it existed. You wouldn't know that it was there. No, exactly. It It shows the lack of traction that they're really getting. I mean, on on the political front, Mm. in the next few weeks, we're obviously expecting a spring budget Mm. from um, the government. And as you've written, globally, there seems to have been a shift away from climate concern Mm. and towards the economy, be that global economic growth or whatever, or for example, Rishi Sunak failing to attend the recent COP27. Yeah. Um, within this budget, if you're thinking optimistically, what policies do you think would signal progress in your eyes, were they to appear, and what do you think is more likely to actually happen within this budget?
1: Um, it 's very difficult to predict what 's going to happen in the budget mm-hmm. i mean the you know the view at the moment and it partly follows the sort of debacle of the trust government and the fact that they, they they undertook a kind of strategy that the bankers in particular and investors took fright at so much that they punished the value of the pound and that made. That put interest rates up, it put um, the cost of government debt up, it made the government very, very wary about spending any money whatsoever. And so when Sunak came in, he came in as, you know, he portrayed himself as a safe pair of hands. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, this explains a little bit why um, Starmer is also trying to portray himself as, uh, you know, the growth party, because it would... In conventional terms, it would be, it's like saying, you know, Labour is a safe pair of hands. Your mm. money is safe with us. You can trust us. We're going to do right by the economy. Everything will be better under Labour. And so for, for Starmer to come out now against Sunak's kind of safe pair of hands policy mm. would be really tricky for him to do unless he had it all fleshed out and all worked out. And so instead, he's trying to out-compete Sunak. Improving that labor is the next safe pair of hands for the economy, mm-hmm. um, but to answer your question, you know what i what I would like to see I mean it is absolutely blindingly clear when you look at the evidence from climate change and you look at the impacts on biodiversity that we 're in the process of kind of overthrowing the sustainability of of the economy and of human economic activities, and we are in a a unique position where we have to invest in that. We have to invest in change, we have to invest in different infrastructures, we have to invest in low-carbon technologies, we have to invest in renewable energy, we have to invest in protecting the environment, protecting habitats, protecting biodiversity, preventing the loss of nature. That's absolutely clear. And a lot of those investments actually are really good, can be also really good for the economy as well. They can be good for resilience, they can be good for uh, community, they can build up new skills, they can employ new people. And so that kind of investment is what I would call a safe pair of hands for the future because mm-hmm. you're investing in the skills that you need, you're protecting the environment that you need and you're uh, you know developing jobs and decent working lives for your population. So that kind of policy is what I would like to see. I would like to see policies that bring together economic security, good working conditions, and protecting the environment. Mm -hmm. But you can't do that. And this is my fear, if you like, for where it will go rather than where it should go. You can't do that if you are basically living inside a party that is continuing to protect its own interests mm-hmm. and the interests in particular of shareholders and investors who are amongst the richest in society mm-hmm. and you're not prepared to look at the living working conditions of the poorest in society and that's where I would hope Starmer would be different I would hope that he would come in he would look at that discrepancy that's the origins of the Labour Party mm-hmm. he's actually in the rights and the livelihoods of working, ordinary working people and that he should say it's time to protect those interests it's time to look after those interests it's time to stop this zero-sum game where we're chasing after growth and the only people who benefit are the shareholders who are investing in speculative bubbles that are destroying the planet That's the re- that's what the you know the overall rhetoric of a critique of the Tories at this point should be and i i fail to understand really why labor doesn't get the point that that's what they should be doing they should they will be voted in if they can articulate that vision in clear mm-hmm. terms because people are sick of it you know they're sick of the inequality they're sick of the poor living conditions they are on the side of the nurses striking even though that sometimes affects our lives in quite yeah. fundamental ways so, you know, that, th- that narrative is there to be had, that political narrative is there to be had. Yeah. I don't think Starmer yet has that, a grasp on that, and okay. I'm absolutely clear that Sunak doesn't, probably can't, because of the way that the Tory party is so internally fragmented
0: at the moment and is at war with itself, yes. essentially. OK, yeah, that, that's... That, that's. Perfect answer to that question. Before we move on to the last question, I had one 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 quick question which I think you, you address in your book Prosperity Without Growth, but it's more for um more more for our listeners. Um obviously a lot of the talk to try and help deal with and get to this sort of post growth society involves governmental action. Mm. What Some, I yeah. what I would like to ask is what individuals can be doing in terms of, I, th- I think, sort of living well, as mm-hmm. I believe you, mm. you you term it, in prosperity that growth. Yeah. What can we be doing to try and help contribute towards this sort of sustainable prosperity? Yeah, There's
1: masses of stuff that individuals can do. I mean, you know, it's tempting to think what individuals can do should be limited to their uh, how they live their lives. So, you know, one classic example as well. You know, if everybody got out of their cars and didn't drive so much, there wouldn't be so much carbon. So um, we might not sell so many cars, so the economy might not grow so fast, but we'd all be healthier because we'd walked, and that would be a good thing, and our children would be healthier, and we wouldn't have emitted so much carbon into the atmosphere, so we wouldn't be screwing the climate. So that's, you know, a very simple thing like that. Or, you know, how much meat do you eat? Meat is more carbon-intensive mm-hmm. than anything else. And Yeah, we want to keep all the dairy farmers going, so that little sector of the economy, we've got to protect that somehow um, but that is not actually the best thing always for our health it's not the best thing for the planet it's not the best thing for animals Mm -hmm. and and so you know that that sort of eat less meat be more vegetarian that kind of those are all things that people can do and I think what goes missing a little bit about out of those conversations is that one of the things you've got to ask yourself I mean you know when when you're younger it's less the case but you always the money you spend, the money you save, always has an impact in society. Mm-hmm. And so you you ask yourself kind of questions like, where is my money? Who's looking after my money, if I've got any? Where, Or even, who's looking after my debt, if you mm-hmm. happen yes. to have a debt? Yeah. Um, and, and, and placing that money and placing that responsibility for your money in organisations that you believe in, that you trust. So, mm-hmm. for example, there's a bank called Triodos Bank, which has been, you know, for 40 years or more, has been... Its whole philosophy has been about sustainability, about investing in the right things. And so if I want my money to be held safely somewhere, I'd rather it was held by someone like that, an institution that wasn't going to invest it in coal mining and slave labor, and was investing in the things that, that matter. So that, where does my money go? That's a, a deeper kind of question that you can ask from the individual point of view. And then finally, you know, in a way, is where do I work? Where do I put my time? Where do I spend my life's mm-hmm. energy? Do I think, well, I want a big salary, I want a fast car, I want, uh, you know, a good pension, so I'm going to work in the financial sector and burn out in 30 years, but extracted masses of value out of the economy so that I can retire early, have a good time? Or do I go and work for, you know, an organisation like, I don't know, Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth or Positive Money that's challenging those conditions? And I think that, you know, how... Particularly for younger people, how you are going to dedicate your life's energy is one of those big choices and and it does make a huge difference to um you know the idea of a different kind of society
0: where you where you spend that that yeah. energy. Mate, that that's that's perfect. I don't want to hear. And then the last one, as as a student myself, and obviously with most of our list is being students. Yeah. Um Especially on um, an econo- on the economics sort of taught in higher education, much of the ideas of post growth mm. and um, the ideas of growth are not necessarily addressed in the same way that you would approach them yeah no they're not What would you think would need to change within economics teaching across education to arguably better prepare students for the society we're living in, the, the almost post-growth society, which you were suggesting, yeah. is currently existent after the financial crisis. What needs to change? What concepts need to be challenged, do you think, with an education? Well, I mean,
1: obviously, first of all, you know, that, that idea, I mean, it's almost the first thing you read in an economics textbook is human needs and wants are insatiable, and so the economy has to grow to provide them. And and it's a very thin psychology. So a part of the psychology of economics is just, you know, it's kind of wrong really. It portrays us all as selfish, novelty seeking hedonists and neglects the fact that human beings are also, you know, altruistic, other regarding care about tradition, care about the environment. And it's like it's like economics has taken a distorted view of what people are. It's fitted it into a few mathematical formulae Mm -hmm. and then it's come out with the equation progress equals growth and it's completely wrong, really, for all the reasons that we've talked about. So I think, you know, what should should economic students in particular think? I mean, it's interesting that economic students in many places are actually demanding change. Mm -hmm. They're actually going to their economic professors and going, you know, your economics doesn't fit the world anymore. This is not the world we're living in. You're not talking enough about climate change or about the loss of biodiversity. You're not even mentioning sometimes inequality. You're telling me that, you know, it's all about productivity and economic growth and that as long as supply meets demand in a free market, then everything is for the best in this the best of all possible worlds. And it's not. I can see it's not as a student. So, you know, I think economics has to respond to that. It has to it has to kind of populate its vision of economics, paint its Mm -hmm. picture of economics from a much more Mm -hmm. varied, more interesting, more colourful palette. It has to broaden its horizons outside the simple mathematical formulae of progress Mm -hmm. and think from a psychological point of view, from a sociological point of view, from a political point of view. And it has to challenge the kind of what I call in post-growth, I call the myth of growth, mm-hmm. which is this overwhelming story that that's what progress is. It's it's endless growth, and it has to also begin to build. And I think this is where you know a young generation of economists is incredibly important because they have the energy, they have the foresight, they have the investment to do it in a way that an older generation isn't able to do now Mm -hmm. that this is really a young people's agenda Mm -hmm. because it requires a different economics it requires an economics for a steady state it requires an economics where the relationship between the public and the private sector is different it requires an economics that isn't just predicated on the idea of growth beyond that it has to actually challenge what i would call our growth dependency our sort of this what I started talking about at the beginning, that kind of semi-religious quasi-fetish that mm-hmm. growth is all that matters. And it has to be build, begin to build an economics for a world in which, to all intents and purposes, we no longer have that kind of growth. And even if we did, it wouldn't necessarily be a good thing. And it has to build an economics which brings social justice back into that equation, which brings environmental limits back into that equation, and which develops actually a sense of the of the destination as not being endless profit and eternal growth, but the well-being of human society and justice between people.
0: That's absolutely amazing. I think we'll wrap up the episode there. Thank you for Very coming good. on, Tim. Thanks, Ted. If anyone wants to hear or read any more about Tim's ideas, he's got multiple interviews, but I'd advise reading Prosperity Without Growth, and his other book more recently, Post-Growth Life After Capitalism.